My name is Patrick Hobbs, and I'm the pastor of Students and Families here at West Park. Uh, and some of you may identify me as the husband of Julie Hobbs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, or even still, some of you may identify me as the father of Isaiah. And I won't go through the rest of them, but there's others. And I'm sure that you've met one of them. So, um, uh, in fact, as we look at identification, uh, if you were looking for a title for today's mention, I've got three that might work for you because I couldn't come up with one, but uh, the credentials of Christ, the recognition of the Redeemer, the identity of Emmanuel. I don't care. Pick one, whichever one you like. One's got C's, one's got R's, one's got I's. Um, but as I think about where we've been and where we have been coming through this book of Luke, uh, this passage that we're going to be looking at, beginning with the baptism and then moving into the genealogy of Christ, it does tell us yet again who he is. And it's so powerful here this morning. To fund, and it's just amazing to see how through Scripture we can have confidence in Jesus as the Lord and Savior and identify him in that way. In fact, today... I've been identified in an incredible amount of ways. Uh, I've been identified as the owner of my iPhone. Um, when I put the passcode in, uh, I don't even know what all that entails, but um, certainly my cell phone company knows who I am now. The email company knows who I, my identity is. Amazon Music knows who I am. Um, yeah, or that someone with my, my thumb has been getting logged in. I don't know. It could be that. Um, but I've also been identified as the operator of a Dodge Ram pickup. When I put my key in there and turned it, it said, yes, you are authorized to start this vehicle. Um, I've been identified by the security system of the, at the doors of this church. I've been identified. I've been identified uh, as a user in the computer networks here when I logged into my computer this morning. I have been identified so many times in so many different ways. It's a bit exhausting. Which is funny, considering that today, one of today's world's largest problems is that we have trouble finding our identity. <laughs> what will I be when I grow up? What will people think of me on social media? What will my boss think about this work? What will my parents think about these grades? We don't know who we are, but Apple and Google do. Well, as we begin to look at this morning's passage in Luke chapter 3, um, we will continue to look at who Jesus is as we look at these verses. Uh, but before recapping this journey and where we're at, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. So. Lord, we do come to you in worship. Lord, we come and bow before you. You are King of kings. Lord of lords, creator of the heavens and the earth, sustainer of them. Lord, Job gives an amazing description of you, how you tell the seas to go no further, how you cause the eagles to have flight, how you take care of goats and ewes. Lord, we come before you here this morning and just regard that we are not worthy and we bow before you. You are big and we are small. You can do all things. And 
Without you, we can do nothing. Lord, as we come to this passage this morning, I just pray that you would put away the distractions of the world. Lord, keep Satan out of here. And Lord, I would just pray that you would help our ears to be opened, our eyes to be focused, and most importantly, for our hearts to be ready to hear your word. And so we come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, as, as uh, Pastor Don read this morning in uh, Luke chapter 3, um, just a quick recap of where we were as, as we looked at last week, uh, last week's message, we see the ministry of John the Baptist as he is six months younger than Jesus um, and out in the wilderness. And what is his ministry at this point? He is proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he's confronting people and saying, you need to be forgiven. You need to repent and you need to be baptized. And he has some unfriendlies that come about and start to question him on this. And he turns them off and tells them, uh, you say you have Abraham, Abraham as your fathers. God is able to rise up from these stones, children of Abraham. And then he starts to communicate what are some of the attributes or characteristics? What do people who have repented and believed and been forgiven, what do they do? And so he goes into these examples of the two tunics and the tax collector and the, the food and, and how we are to be loving to other people around us. And so we see John out there in his ministry baptizing individuals. And as you would see if you looked over to John chapter 1, we have Jesus who comes on the scene. John chapter 1 verse 29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. And so he recognizes Jesus for who he is. In John chapter 1 verse 29 he says, He is the Lamb of God. And this is where we see one man's ministry begin to decline and end. That's John the Baptist because he will be imprisoned soon and murdered. But we see the rise of another. We see the ordination of Jesus Christ as he comes on the scene. Up until this point, no miracles, no public ministry. Only as we've seen in previous, as he was born, he was at the temple, he grew only, only in his human form. And so we come here and we see this. And we see in this first verse of Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, this again is a sign, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that the ministry of John the Baptist is ending. It is concluding. But as we look at the next portion of that verse, it states... When Jesus also had been baptized. This is really a remarkable development. Remember that the message of John the Baptist in verse 3 is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, sinless, gets baptized. He has nothing to repent for. In reading through this passage, we are not to check our brain at the door. We're to ask questions like this. And a bit of investigation will help our question. It'll help us find the answer here. 
In fact, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John the Baptist asked the same question of Jesus. This passage is in all of the Gospels, so we can flip back and forth between Luke and John and Matthew and Mark and see a fuller account and see all the different ways that this has been recorded. And John says in the Matthew account of this, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John here recognizes that Jesus is sinless and says, no, 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 I'm not baptized. Are you kidding me? I'm looking at purity. I'm looking at holiness. I'm looking at perfect. Uh, you need to be baptizing me. And so as we sit here and say, why would Jesus be baptized? Thankfully, we just need to look one more verse further in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus says, let's do this thing. Why? Because it's fitting for us. We are supposed to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And how we are to be right with God, how we are to Help his plan. And that's my first point. As you look at why is Jesus baptized, the first point is, it's to fulfill the plan of the Lord. So if we look at this, there's three aspects. This first one, fulfilling the plan of the Lord. Isaiah 42, right? The prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament, so many different times, he describes who the Messiah is and how he will come. And in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1, he says, Behold my servant, this is about the Messiah, whom I will uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So we see in verse 1 that the Messiah will have God's spirit put upon him. So when we look further, we will see that the spirit comes and descends upon Jesus. And that was foretold by Isaiah. So why does he get baptized? He gets baptized because there needs to be a public display of the spirit descending upon Jesus. And we know from earlier in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So it's not that he doesn't have the Holy Spirit in him. He is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is God fully. So it's not that Jesus doesn't have the Holy Spirit. It's that there is a sign, a prophetic sign that has to be unleashed. It has to be unwrapped here. There's a gift that we can't see. And so when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes... It's part of this fulfilling of the plan of the Lord. And so that's the first item here of why does Jesus need to be baptized. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. So if we look over in John chapter 1, as we turn over there, John actually speaks to this in his account of this baptism. In John chapter 1, if we look beginning in verse 32, this is John, the apostle, speaking about John the Baptist, okay? So I know there's a lot of Johns there. Don't get them all confused. So we have here John saying, and John bore witness. This isn't saying himself, right? This is saying about John the 
Baptist. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit. This is verse 32. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Keep going. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, he, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. Do you see the encounter that we have here? John was told in an earlier time and place that whomever the Spirit descended upon and remained upon would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he confirms, John confirms by eyewitness that he, Jesus, is the Son of God. And so not only do we have Isaiah in the Old Testament saying this, but we have this revelation to John the Baptist that's saying, hey, the Lord told me the Holy Spirit needs to come and rest on somebody. And so, again, why does Jesus get baptized? To fulfill the plan of the Lord. Point number two, why does Jesus get baptized? Jesus was validating, he was validating the baptisms of John as from God. As we mentioned earlier, John the Baptist was proclaiming sinners needed the baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Participating in baptism, Jesus was publicly supporting the work of John, right? He comes along and he he says, hey, no, I need to be baptized as well. Why? To support the work of John, aligning with those who had been baptized. The support of this baptism is further evidenced by Jesus in the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We didn't stop baptizing when Jesus got baptized. Baptizing continues. Why? Jesus tells us to continue baptizing. He's supporting the work of John. He's saying, go forth and continue this ministry. He's validating the work of John. But there's a third reason Jesus gets baptized. The first two are very important. But we can also say that Jesus' baptism was a defining event that signifies the beginning of his earthly ministry. It's a defining event that signifies the beginning of his earthly ministry. Looking ahead, Jesus will head off to be tempted in the wilderness. He'll be followed, uh, he'll be, that'll be followed by preaching in the synagogues. He will be performing miracles all along the way, on his way to the cross in Jerusalem. But at this moment, we see his coronation for his ministry. And so as we look at this one, there's some other items that we need to look at in this. So is defining the event, this event as being significant of the beginning of his ministry, there's a few things we need to look at. Number one, the heavens were opened. This is a sign of God breaking into time and space. For 400 years, we haven't heard from God. For 400 years, it's been silent. And Jesus comes and is baptized. And what does it say? It says the heavens were opened. And this word opened 
is a Greek word. It's only used one other time. It's to rip apart. And the other time it's used is talking about the veil in the temple being torn from the top to the bottom. And so when we see this imagery, we see these clouds being cast apart, torn apart. We see that the Lord is about to end the silence. Isaiah, again, in chapter 64, verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, rip open the heavens, and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah knew that the clouds were going to be torn back. And so did the Jewish people. The Jewish people had these texts from Isaiah. They had been reading these. They may have even been present to see this happening. The second part, the Holy Spirit descended visibly, gently as a dove. In the form of like, right? The Holy Spirit came down bodily as a dove. What does that refer to? Gentleness. Doves don't come flapping in like crazy, right? Right? Doves, if you ever watch them, they kind of float in. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. These heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit comes in. And again, we look to Isaiah. But this time in chapter 11, Isaiah says in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah was in tune with this baptism, wasn't he? (laughs) He knew what was going on. He didn't have it all put together. He had the, the scriptures in a little different spots, but he had seen different visions of it at different times. And so the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven to provide this special anointing for Jesus, for his ministry. And then we have, again, we have the Father in heaven, right? There in verse... Uh, 22, it says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And when we look at this, we can say, oh, we know it's father because he mentions that Jesus is his son. And so we have the father in heaven. And as we look at this, we see this affirmation from our father in heaven to the son of God, Jesus Christ. Now remember, at this point, he hadn't done his miracles. So he wasn't affirming Christ for the work he had already done. He was affirming Christ for his sinlessness and affirming Christ for being obedient and coming here and helping to fulfill the prophecies. And so God here affirms him. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, another prophetic psalm, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son Today I have begotten you. We see again where Old Testament passages point us to this baptism of Christ. Now there is another component to this baptism, Trinity. Now let's talk about the Trinity for just a minute. Trinity is not a biblical term. I understand that. I get that. It's not present in the Holy Scriptures. However, it is a helpful term. And if you were to look at the West Park Baptist Church website under what we believe, you would find there the following statement. 
There is one God who exists in three persons. Did you get that? One God who exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the creator and ruler of the universe. This is a Trinitarian belief. This is that there are three pieces to the Godhead. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. One God existing eternally as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. And we can't understand that, but we can see it in the scriptures. They're right here. We see the Son, Jesus, in the water. We see the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. We see the Father speaking to the Son from heaven, all present simultaneously. Close, but very different, is the belief statement from a large church and parachurch organization out of Dallas, Texas, which says, we would not agree with this, by the way, there is one God, creator of all things, indefinitely perfect and eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this organization believes that God is manifested in one form at a time. He's either Jesus right now, but he can't be the other two, or he's the Holy Spirit and can't be the other two, or he is God the Father and can't be the other That is what we would call in contemporary terms modalism. Or if you were in the first century, you would call that Sabellianism. Yeah, it's not that new. But this false teaching is at a, this is false teaching at a minimum and likely heresy because we can see the evidence of God in all three persons simultaneously right here in these passages at this time. So this would bring into question the entirety of that ministry that I just mentioned. So please look out carefully whom you're following. Now, one final area on this baptism as we take a look at this. The baptism of Jesus is a defining event beginning his ministry. Luke tells us again in a different book. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And so when we say that this is a defining moment, a defining event to launch Jesus into ministry, this is what Luke says about it in the book of Acts in chapter 10 in verse 36. As the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning, this is the key point, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Did you catch that? Luke mentions right here in Acts chapter 10, in verse 37, that the beginning was from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Luke helps us here also see that this is the jumping off point for Jesus' ministry. This is where he's heading out and be going public. He's going public. So, as we take a look at these, these, these uh, different areas of, of uh, Jesus' Baptism, we see uh, just in review here that he has, uh, they're fulfilling the plan of the Lord. They're validating the baptisms of John uh, uh, as from God. And that it's a defining event that signifies the beginning of his earthly, his earthly ministry. 
All right, now, taking a look at the next part of this, the genealogy of Jesus. And we've got about five minutes to get through that. Thank you, Pastor Don, for reading that passage wherever you are. Uh, So before looking at this, you might find this a little bit funny. Um, You know, so there are two passages in the Bible, 1 Timothy 1 and Titus 3, that say to be careful not to devote yourselves or even avoid genealogies. Okay, because you can get caught up in them. And the reason behind this is, is during this day, during the time of Christ, um, your, your genealogy, your family determined your land. So if you remember, in the book of Joshua, beginning in about chapter 13, the land that God had given to the Israelites on the, across the Jordan, they started to divide this up between the different tribes, the different nations of Israel. And so that had carried forth and continued on. And so it was important that whatever family you were part of determined what your land holdings were. And then on the flip side... It also determined your inheritance. So if you were part of this person's family, then that meant you got a portion of the inheritance that was due as part of that family. And so essentially, all that being said, the Israelites, the Jewish people, had a, did a very meticulous job of caring for these genealogies, these family trees. They kept them, and they kept them all in the temple. Okay, so very, very important stuff. And the funny part is, is yesterday, you know, mentioned that Joe was sick, right? And so I got the call. Yesterday, our results came back from Ancestry.com. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you, Lord, for helping me out with that one. So Ancestry.com, so my wife and my son, Parker, both sent these, these things in. Okay, and so they came back, and Ancestry.com determined that my son Parker had a high degree of likelihood of being the son of Julie, my wife. (laughs) That was amazing. That was awesome. But here's the, the other important piece. It also told us that we were descendants of Abraham Hobbes, who brought us here from England, uh, and that's how the family of the Hobbes family, Abraham Hobbes, brought us over to the United States. So, thank you, Lord, that was funny. Um, All kidding aside, in this, uh, so these genealogies were very, very important. And so I want you to recognize, as we look at this passage, before we even get into this, the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So all of these records of these families, of all the Israelites, and who was related to who, gone in the fire, completely gone. What a gift it is that we have Luke 3, what a gift it is that we have Matthew 1, where they, these writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were to go and look at the public records of the families and to write this down for us. What a gift that is. And as we look at this, this genealogy 
there's some different points between this genealogy and the one that you'll find in Matthew. And just to, to highlight those, this genealogy, you will notice as Pastor Don was reading through it, that there is one significant difference between this one and, well, there's a couple. There's, a, there's a one big one, though. In, in Matthew chapter 1, you'll notice it's the genealogy from Joseph, okay? So that's Jesus' um, father, his adopted father. And so as you look at that, you can see, man, Joseph, he was in the line of David, right? He was, he was, there was David, there was Solomon, there was lots of guys, and there was Joseph, right? <laughs> the father of Jesus. And then you'll see that that genealogy goes back to Abraham. When you look at this genealogy, if you were to look specifically in verse 31, and we don't have time to go there, but you can go look at it if you'd like. This one is a different family tree. Because when you look at David, it's not the first son, Solomon. It's the third son, Nathan. We're looking at Mary's genealogy here. We're looking at the family of Mary. And so when we look at this, we see that. And this is, this is, if you take a look at it, there's other things that signal how Luke is trying to demonstrate how important Mary is in the equation. You see, the book of Matthew was written in such a way that he would be able to refute any Israelites about who, um, about who Jesus was. So when Matthew was writing, he was saying he was a son of Abraham. He was from David. And you know what? All this stuff. But Luke is looking at this from a different perspective. And so if we look at this, in Matthew's gospel, we see the genealogy of Joseph, the father of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, we see the angel visiting Joseph in a dream. Let's look at Luke. In Luke, we see Elizabeth conceiving the forerunner to Jesus. In Luke we see an angel coming to Mary. In Luke, we see Mary visit Elizabeth. In Luke, we see Mary singing the Magnificent. In Luke, we see the genealogy of Mary. So Luke is highlighting, and isn't this great? Because if any Pharisee or scribe were to come and say, Jesus, that's not his real dad. Joseph isn't his, really, his real dad. Therefore, he's not, a, not from David. They could say his mama, his bloodline, right, is from David. There's no denying. We got it covered there both ways. Praise the Lord. So the royal bloodline is intact. And there's another point that's different about these genealogies. The genealogy in Matthew goes back to Abraham because, again, Matthew is trying to show and demonstrate that Jesus comes from Abraham, comes from David. Luke says, I'm going back to God because Jesus came not just for the Jewish people. He came for everyone. And I will tell you here today, if you, if you don't know who your father was, you don't know who your mother was, you don't know where you came from, this genealogy tells you it doesn't matter. Jesus has got it covered. Amen. All right, outside of these differences, Luke finishes by making the connection uh, at the end of these genealogies back to verse 22. 
So he finishes with the son of Adam, the son of God, which if you look back to his baptism, you are my beloved son. And so Luke, right, at the beginning of the book of of Luke, Luke is saying that he is providing an orderly account for you that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wants you to know without the shadow of a doubt who Jesus is. So what can we learn from the baptism of Christ? What can we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? Application, we're running low on time here. What can we learn from these two topics? Application point number one. Through these passages, we have the credentials from God the Father, the credentials from God the Spirit, from eyewitnesses, from genealogy, from Old Testament prophecy, to add to that of the shepherds, the angel Gabriel, and the multitude of angels, that Jesus is the Son of God indeed. Therefore, we can have assurance of our faith in Him, in Him as the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, we can demonstrate to others through these passages right here that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Application point number two. We regard Jesus' baptism as the defining moment that gave him the authority to do ministry. And as such, we should regard our own baptism in the same way. In Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33, And they came again to Jerusalem, the disciples, and as he was walking in the temple... The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So the elders and the scribes and the priests, they thought, by the power of Beelzebub, he's doing these miracles. He's healing these people. That's what what he's doing. So they go up and they're going to try to trick him. By what power are you doing these? What does Jesus say? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. I will tell you what authority I do these things. Verse 30, this is Mark chapter 11. You can look it up later. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? That's his question. Do you see the importance of the baptism of Christ? And then they discussed it with one another and they were confounded by it. Application Point number three. So, that, so number one is that we can be certain through these passages of who God is, which is the Son of God indeed. Application point number two, we regard Jesus' baptism as a defining moment that gave him authority to do ministry. And as such, we should regard our baptism in the same way. That's our launching point for going into ministry. Application point number three. As Christ identifies with sinners like us through his baptism, right? Because he identified with us. He didn't have to be baptized. He came here to earth for us. We need to identify with Christ through our baptism. I'm not saying that baptism is required for salvation. But rather, we are baptized in obedience. Remember what Jesus said. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Jesus commands us to go, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized or you aren't even sure why we're talking this much about Jesus. Let me tell you that God is perfectly good and I am not. And because I'm not perfectly good, I will die and live in hell forever. Only perfectly good people get to heaven. And there are no perfectly good people. But because God loves me, he provided a way out. His perfectly good son, perfectly sinless good son, Jesus, without guilt, took the penalty for me when he died innocently on the cross 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus rose from the dead, as predicted, he demonstrated again he was God. And if I change my ways and follow Jesus, all of my guilt and shame will be forgiven. And I become part of a new family called Christians.